My name is Stuart Parker, and this is my show, Cocktail Hour. This is Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker. Uh, for the next uh, couple of weeks, while we round out 2022, uh, I'll be posting uh, some recordings to both my channel and Los Altos Institute's channel on um, Anchor FM. Uh, tonight, uh, I'm posting a uh, talk that was just given by Ira Zabarski, uh, a long-term uh, eco-anarchist uh, who has worked uh, out of uh, northern Guatemala and uh, British Columbia uh, for the past uh, four decades. Uh, he has some interesting reflections on uh, his recent work in um, Eastern Europe, in the region that is now at war in uh, Eastern Ukraine. Um, he's been trying to do some business there and has some specific stories about the political situation in that part of the world, in addition to uh, a number of very important stories about uh, his core territory of the Mayan-speaking areas of Guatemala. Anyway, we listened to him tonight at the People's Co-op Bookstore on Commercial Drive in Vancouver, and here is most of his talk. I first met Ira Zabarski in 1988 when he returned from the great shoe-throwing Green Party convention that took place that summer. Uh, we immediately began planning a protest against McDonald's restaurants, against um, their use of beef from the Brazilian rainforest, and their relabeling that beef in the port of Miami. Uh, when the date came for the protest, I discovered that Ira had left the country. Ira Zabarski is as much a great organizer as he is a trickster figure on the global left, the sort of person we need a lot more of. Anyway, Ira has um, built permacultural communes in British Columbia, in uh, Sorrento and Clinton. He has uh, developed trade relationships among uh, Mayan speakers in Highland Guatemala and uh, the people of Donbass, uh, Transnistria, and uh, the Philippines. And Ira is um, currently active in uh, moving uh, Mayan chocolate, herbs, and coffee uh, to uh, indigenous markets in British Columbia. Ira, for a, a few years, was on the list of death squad uh, targets in Guatemala. He successfully lobbied the Guatemalan government to take him off the list. He has also been incarcerated a number of times and has led prison hunger strikes on uh, important issues. So uh, it was a great honor to have Ira spend an evening with uh, us folk at the Institute and have an intimate conversation about his political organizing. Occasionally, the people who are being certified who are growers of different crops, normally we're talking about coffee, might get a little bit more money for their crop. They might not get a little bit more money, but the lawyers and the accountants, they all, always get the, their fair share. All right, so this, the concept of fair trade I'm talking about tonight is 
where we we actually give on a present mode uh, of a significant increase in the amount of money that the growers receive for their crops, but it also involves building a relationship between me and whoever I represent and the communities that the growers live in. So it's a relationship between me and my band of little friends and the little communities we live in in the north with whole communities involving thousands of people. And so what we do is we buy crops from the growers, but we also establish what we call eco-development or eco-desarrollo projects in the communities, whether they're hydro technology for pr providing power or establishing uh, projects to process their crops so they can get a higher value for their crops. Many uh, hundreds and hundreds of different types of projects that I've been involved with. Okay, um, I would, this kind of fair trade is what I would call risky business. And I'll give you an example, a very short story. I started working in the Philippines and <clears throat> I was involved in building up the coffee trade, but I also connected with people who were involved in the sugar trade. I moved, I was based in the province of Batangas, and which is all sugar sugar cane. And so I worked with an organization called Kaisahan, Sugar Workers Cooperative or Association of Batangas. And they were super interested in the idea of taking control of their own crops, processing themselves, developing their own markets and getting a hell of a lot more money for the crops. The state of their li livelihoods was that they devoted all the land that they have, and these were landowners, they devoted all their land to growing sugar and they got virtually nothing for the crop. They had no, they lived on white rice and seaweeds <coughs> that they collected in, in the ravines and the creeks uh, in the area, you know, which flows down to the ocean. Batangas is on the ocean, it's the southern edge of the main island of the Philippines. And so uh, I started working with Kaisahan and the idea was to learn how to build a sugar mill. And I connected with some engineers and they were delighted with the idea of building a machine to meet the needs of the people. And they developed a state-of-the-art sugarcane milling machine uh, which I financed and then uh, I had to learn how to build the ovens for the sugar cane. You basically the, the machines mill the, the, the cane producing a juice. Uh, the juice normally is processed and crystallized and chemicalized into white sugar. What we were trying to do is to evaporate the water from the juice and create a, a like a sugar cake which is pure natural sugar. That was the plan. Okay, so I figured it all out. I learned how to build it. I had people like, giving me advice. We built this amazingly large sugar ovens and we got the machine. It took us 10 people to carry it through the forest to an area hidden away. It just so happened that Kaisahan, being a sugar workers association, of course, all our key leaders were members of the 
New People's Army or the Communist Party of the Philippines. And so the, the, the community was not very well recognized or, or not credible to the government, but these were the people that were most dedicated to this project and they wanted, they wanted to be the first uh, project like this. And so we built the, the mill and we built the, um, the ovens and we actually got it going. It, it took me a while to learn how to do it and the com total community was involved and they, they did the construction. You know, I would go to uh, shops to get certain pieces built, uh, fabricating metal pieces and they, they were dedicated, they were well organized, they were a really tight organized community of people. And that's why we chose that community as the first project. Okay, so we built the machine, we built the ovens, and we started producing sugar, and we managed to get one, our first uh, crop off, and we shipped a container load of sugar to Vancouver. In the meantime, I'm working with the Sugarcane Workers Association, and you know, they have great plans, and they would drag me from community to community, and we're talking about building these sugar mills, now that we were perfecting our design, we were going to build 10 mills. That was the plan, 10 mills. When the, unfortunately, sugarcane is controlled by a cartel in Batangas. And they weren't too happy with this. They thought because we were offering triple the price for the sugarcane, plus no trucking costs because we were processing it all in their own communities, so the growers would actually be getting four times the market price for their sugar. The agreement was <clears throat> we, we would process their sugar, they would get the three times the market price, plus not having to spend any of their own money on the trucking, on the condition that they would dedicate a percentage of their land to growing food, so that they could eat real food, vegetables, and that we were gonna uh, teach them how to grow organic. That's the idea of eco-development, all right? So that's how it all fit in. Unfortunately, the cartel uh, was kind of concerned about it. They thought maybe if we <laughs> built 10 mills, we might bankrupt them or seriously affect them and decrease drastically the volume. So they called up the government. The government phoned up the Navy. The Navy came in with their troops and they blew up our machinery. and course freaked out the community and that ended that then they found the uh, coordinator of the project who had agreed to do the work when I when I or my friends weren't around or the Kaisan wasn't around and they killed him and killed one other guy so this is what I mean by risky business that's an example of the type of work you do you're um, I'll try to explain the philosophy here I do politics not through expressing ideas. I mean, you know, sure we talk ideas, but the idea of our politics is to build a relationship of products, of things that we use, that we need, between the people that grow it, the communities that where these growers live, the communities that would benefit from the projects we do at the community level, building relationships with like-minded people, supportive people in 
who are the consumer populations like Vancouver. <clears throat> so that that's the idea. That's our fair trade idea. We do our politics through the distribution of our commodities, through the distribution of our project work. That's how we change things by building networking, working relationships, like an ongoing, it's not something you get burnt out on because you're, yet you, your life is changing, your, your, your health, your diet depends on the products that you want that are coming from these communities, right? So it's a, you're building a relationship and it's like a permanent relationship. Like for example, yesterday on the weekend I did I did a mar market at Musqueam. You know, I'm trying to build a relationship between Musqueam people and the Maya Kekchi people in Guatemala. <clears throat> this is an example. I want to build a partnership relationship between these two so that I can begin bringing people from this Maya Kekchi territory, which is the biggest Mayan territory probably there is to the Musqueam and begin exchanging product. For, <clears throat> for example, a lot of the people that came to the market and came to my table are people that are sick. They have chronic illnesses. So I'm trying to get them onto all these natural herbs that are being grown by the Maya Kekchi. And what I want to do is, because I work with the populations that are into natural medicine, natural healing, they're the people that are into ceremony. They're the people into using their traditional uh, Mayan ceremonies to do healing along with whatever herbs that they traditionally use. So we want to bring up some of these healers to do ceremonies, to build a, you know, a relationship with people who have chronic illnesses up here so that they be, you build a, a fixed permanent relationship between these people. That's the idea. Um, that's the kind of work I do. I, you know, I, I, I might talk ideas, and, but you know, when ultimately it's a matter of working with the people that you want to support, uh, trying to help them develop their own local economies, uh, become more natural in the way they grow their crops, in the way they do their medicines, so that, for example, in Guatemala, through this whole COVID period, nobody went to doctors and hospitals. The hospitals were empty. There was all, the government of Guatemala got all this money to open up all these hospitals, to put all these COVID patients in. Nobody went to them. They stayed home and they invited the, the healers in their community to come and offer them their herbs. And not all of them recovered, but most of them did. and, and Anybody who went to the hospitals uh, forced to go under these the equipment they were using, the drugs they were using, the diet they were being given, they all died. <clears throat> so that was an, an incentive for them, people to get into, get back to their traditional ways, get into their ceremonies, learn to uh, improve their diets, use natural herbs, medicines, and... So that's just another example of the relationship. We're trying to build a relationship between the Musqueam and uh, you know, an area in Isabel of Maya Kekchi. Um, 
So, uh, <clears throat> could I send you in a particular direction here? Part of part of what you've been billed as is uh, you uh, you spent some time trying to do this work in Kurson, and all of this <laughs> international interest is, of course, looking at Eastern Ukraine, and you have some direct on the ground experience of that, where you were trying to do business there after the start of the Civil War, but before the start of the International War. I was wondering if you could fill people in on sure. some of that. All right, so, like I, my own personal politics is I'm a bi-regional autonomist, right? I believe we have to decentralize. Even if you have a, a communist or a socialist state, undoubtedly as centralized as it is, it'll become corrupt. So I'm into decentralizing. Um, I won't go into any more detail than that, but when I, when the uh, the Americans organized the coup d'état, I don't know if people are familiar with. They hired mercenaries. They were in these high rises and they were shooting at both sides when the uh, protests were going on around the time of uh, Yanukovych, who was still the president then, who wanted to... Uh, I don't know the history, but he wanted... Yanukovych is the president of record for the um, Party of Regions. That's right. The party that consistently win, won in eastern Ukraine and often won the overall popular vote. But it's the party that won every free election in eastern Ukraine starting in 94. Yeah, so I was always attracted to this idea of party of regions. That's kind of, you know, in theory, it's kind of like my politics. And so that means that they re recognize the, auto <clears throat> the autonomy and the cultural security of the different peoples of Ukraine. Like Ukraine consists of a territory of Polish people, a territory of Hungarian people, a territory of Romanian people, uh, gypsies communities, and then the Russian communities, as well as the Ukrainians. And so, recognize the rights of each of these peoples to their culture, their education, whatever. So I, I kind of supported that idea. And then after the coup, and Yanukovych was forced to flee to Russia, and <clears throat> the uh, Ukrainian nationalists some people call them Nazis, uh, took power. Um, the first thing they did was they banned the Russian language and the Russian culture. So uh, I was attracted to this area because they all had vote referendum and they all voted to become autonomous. In the case of Crimea, they voted to become autonomous and join the Russian Federation. In the case of Donetsk and Lugansk, they became autonomous. They wanted to maybe stay, have some kind of status in Ukraine, but they wanted to maintain the, the relationship they had with the former government, where it was a, a party or a, a federation of autonomous regions, and the Russian culture and language would be respected. But um, I, when I started meeting people in the universities and then started meeting people in the government in Donetsk, um, <clears throat> they were all panicking because they were going to lose their jobs, their career, their lives because they didn't speak Ukrainian and uh, they were going to shut down the universities because it was the Russian universities and they were, you know, didn't, it wasn't Ukrainian culture language all that. 
and they're <clears throat> remarkable, remarkably advanced people. I mean, it's a highly industrialized area. Um, they're working with in some incredible technologies that you know they were happy to show me. A little bit, I little Russian I could speak, trying to understand the complex scientific basis of some of their scientific work and physics and chemistry and metallurgy and anyway. Um, <clears throat> so I, my base was was Kherson because that was still part of Ukraine. I could come and go as I pleased and and I was practicing my Russian in Kherson and I had Spanish speaking friends there so I you know could communicate and keep in touch with what's going on. And, but I would travel to by train into Donetsk whenever I had the opportunity and the plan was was we were going to build a relation between the Maya Kekchi and Maya Kakchikel who grow coffee f with me and the people over there. In the case of uh, <coughs> in the case of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk of course uh, after they ha held a referendum and wanted to become autonomous in some form or another and set up their own government, the uh, Ukrainian nationalist government uh, started a war against them and started bombarding their cities and their villages. And I was an eyewitness to that. I and this is <coughs> 2015, right? Yeah. How I, long was the, sorry, the language ban before that? That was... Pardon? The, the language ban you were talking about, is was that around the same time as the Maidan? 2014? Yeah, that's right. It was right after that. And then I think it's 221 that they actually uh, took away the civil rights of any Russian-speaking people. Or Russian-speaking people, Jewish-speaking, Jewish people, and uh, the Gypsy people. These people's rights were formally banned. Anyway, um, <coughs> so... Uh, the guy who became president of Ukraine, his name is Poroshenko, he happened to be the, uh, he had a, a corporate entity which makes chocolate, Roshen chocolate it's called, and if you go into any supermarket in Kherson or in Donetsk, you'll see a huge stand of Roshen chocolate, right? And of course, uh, every time someone bought a chocolate bar in Donetsk, which was being attacked with missiles from the Ukraine army, trained by the Canadians um, who were shooting these missiles at the Donetsk Oblast, or part of the Oblast, because they only gained control of part of it. Um, so the people there didn't want to continue financing the president of the Nationalist Republic of Ukraine, which was shooting missiles at their oblast. So I came along uh, and I said, well, you know, uh, if you guys want to set up a chocolate industry, we'll build a relationship between the Maya Kekchi people. They will, uh, <clears throat> what we do to explain how it works is in the, uh, in the Kekchi territories, the people that are growing cacao and then we're encouraging more people to grow. Um, they grow it and uh, they get next to nothing for they get very very little for it and so 
I would go into the community and say, all right, I will pay you double the price, um, but we would, we would be processing the cacao in your community. This is value added, right? This is the whole idea of eco-development. Doing the stuff naturally, process the stuff in your own communities, market the stuff yourselves, develop all your own skills. So I would build a machinery, bring it into the community so they would learn how to roast their own beans. Uh, I would teach them how to ferment their beans. They would roast their beans and uh, the families in the communities would hollow beans, right? Like we would have a roaster running, all very simple technology, you know, no bells and whistles, just physical labor, rotating drums, you know, with covers to keep the heat in and, you know, very clever, simple design. Then when the, uh, when the roast would be done, maybe 40 or 50 pounds, it would be taken off its fires and all wood fire and then this is in the rainforest, of course. And then it would be put on a stand and they would rotate it to cool it down. And then there'd be a lineup of women there ready to receive their cow, cow beans. And then they'd take it home and they'd haul it and they'd make some money, right? So, uh, so they were delighted. So they were making some cash. So they had some, the women had some spending money, right? Otherwise, it's the men that do all the work to make the cash. So uh, in this case, it was the women that had their own little economy and they were making a little bit, not you know, nothing serious, but a little bit. And um, so the idea was, so then they would, they would uh, roast and haul the bean and then they would bring it to me. I would, you know, they would do maybe a few hundred pounds every week or two. And then I would come and pick it up and check the quality and check the equipment and take it away and then I would take it to I had a machine that would grind it and I would grind it, it when you grind the cacao the, when it's hauled and roasted it turns into for because of the heat and the friction it would turn into a liquid it's like cacao is like 40% oil and the oil is potent medicine it'll cure dementia it'll cure Alzheimer's it's an amazing medicine I would take it, I would grind it, and I would pour it into molds, like six pound molds. And that's my finished product. And it, if I bring it back to BC, uh, I would process it here and make chocolate. And then like I was at the market on the weekend, I was selling my chocolate, you know, like half pound, three quarter pound bricks of chocolate. But the, the uh, product <coughs> that was produced in Guatemala are these six pound blocks. And my idea was to take these blocks, put them on a boat, go over to Spain, Puerto Algeciras, and then a smaller boat, take it around to Mariupol, which was in the Donetsk Oblast, and bring them these blocks. That was the plan, right? So, you know, we were having meetings with the government, and they were all really excited about it. They wanted to get away from Rochette and chocolate, they wanted to have their own chocolate. They would be producing their own chocolate. And these are industrialists. These people could make machines way, way better than I could. So, but unfortunately, in the wars that, that happened in, that, in those years, 2014-15, uh, the Russians weren't supporting the, uh, the militias in Donetsk, and they lost control of the port. And then I couldn't get back in. 
and you know they shut down the borders and so that was the end of the project for the time being but you know we're maneuvering to try to figure out how we're going to get in but the the idea here is that you're building a relationship between these rural communities in Guatemala with a, a autonomous territory in in Eastern Europe or like I've been to uh, Transnistria on the Dniester River you know it's a it's a what is it maybe a million a nation of a million and a half people and this uh, this is uh, between Moldova and Ukraine you were saying that's right yeah and they became autonomous 92 93 and have been left alone yeah they've been left alone you know there's been lots of talk about the russians now trying to take over that entire territory from southern russia through Transnistria. so that would become either part of at the time there was thought it would become part of new russia Novorussia. There was that was a dream of the former president commander of the state of autonomous republic of Donetsk. He wanted to revive the idea of Novorussia. But and that's you know when I was working there that was that was the concept I was working with. But the rela- the idea was to build a relationship, a fair trade relationship, and then the funds that would be generated by the trade would be used for projects in Guatemala and also projects in the communities in the Donetsk Oblast. That's the idea. Trade generates capital. And with capital, it could be used for social purposes or it could be used to generate wealth for the rich. And But trade has been around for 10,000 years or so. And it generates capital. It generates revenue that could be used for good or it could be used for bad, whatever. And I and and we need capital to work. Like I, I'm trying to develop, help develop these industries, building these these machines. That it requires me to buy metal, pay someone to weld them, let's get someone to design them, right? So that need we that's capital, right? And uh, so you could say I'm a capitalist, but the idea is to, to use the capital to to be put in the in the control of the communities. And just to give you an example, uh, the one the first community or the second community I started working in in, in my Kekchi territory is this ideal ideal uh, democratic process. They have meetings every Sunday and everybody in the community comes out and they talk about whatever issues they want and and uh, the, the leader of the community his job is to meet the needs of the people in the community it's a it's an ideal beautiful participatory democracy right and and it works and so that when I proposed the idea of building processing, industry in their community you know they had their meetings and they all agreed to it and they all when it came down to doing the building because I I don't pay people wages you know it's if you're not going to volunteer to do to build a, a project that's going to be benefiting your own community then I'm not going to be part of it and they you know 
like 50, 60 men and a few women came out to, to do the work. And every time they do a roast, say every second Sunday, you know, 20, 30 people will come out to take their turns to roast and 30, 40, 50 women will come out. To, maybe a few of them will help, who are strong enough, will help to turn the machine or they'd be there to haul the beans, right? It's a beautiful participatory process to watch. And if there's beautiful processes like that going on in the South, we could build beautiful participatory processes up here, maybe we can build a relationship and then they both can finance uh, each other. Like when I, when, I, when I go to these markets to sell my chocolate, I mean, the people I, I work with there, they say, you, you're giving away your stuff and I'm feeling embarrassed because there's so much money that's being generated from this. Um, and it could be used for a good thing. I mean, the money that I generated from that is going to go towards whatever other projects you know we're we're involved in. There's coffee projects and chocolate projects. We're uh, we do a lot of different spices. We're promoting we're growing of cinnamon and turmeric and uh, wild ginger and uh, cloves and all kinds of products. And now we're we're working in in medicines, like for example. I work in uh, a network of 40 communities in the Central Highlands around the city, and they're they're organized by the women. They're all they're women's groups. The women are tend to be much more cohesive, and uh, they don't they're landless peasants. They have no land, and <clears throat> so they have a little patch, you know, maybe like the size of this spot right here. Or they might have a big pot, I'll give them a big pot and they'll, they'll plant the crops they want them to grow in this pot and then they'll put it in their neighbor's field or neighbor's yard when they're not watching because there's sun there and when they think they're coming home from work, they'll take it away and bring it. I mean, they have so little resources to work with. But what, they, what I have them growing is insulina. Insulina in English, it's called the insulin plant. The insulin plant will cure diabetes. You drink it for a, a week or so, and these women were all testing it out. It's, it detoxifies your liver, it cleans out your <coughs> kidneys, it levels your blood sugar, it, uh, it uh, levels your blood pressure, it's uh, a tonic for your pancreas, right? It's just magic herb, just like turmeric. Turmeric's another one. In the case of turmeric, I bring them the seed, they grow the turmeric for me. I bring them the equipment. They learn how to. They grind the uh, the turmeric up, and then they they dry it for me. And then they they make instead of making uh, a few pennies a pound, I give them you know a couple of dollars a pound because here I can sell it for fifteen to twenty dollars a pound. So I you know I have to have some cost, but there's a lot of capital generated by this because it's a very powerful herb and it works and this insulina it works the people the women there they started using it said wow it's amazing so i was i was promoting insulina in musqueam where they say 50 percent of the native people of bc are suffering from diabetes right 
So I'm trying to, you know, I had all my different diabetes herbs all lined up and I was saying, you got to use a little of this and that, so much of that and so much of that. So they're going to try to get off the drugs, the injections, you see. But in the process, they would be building a relationship with the Maya Kekchi people. And then if I can bring the Maya Kekchi people up here and to spend time in their communities, maybe do an exchange, then I don't have to be involved anymore. It could become a relationship. But that's a hope anyway. Anyway, so that's the idea of my fair trade. It's building a, a, a working relationship between people who, uh, whose cultures you respect. And these people, I, I, I love what they do, how they live. They live off the land. They, they grow a bit of crops. Maybe they'll work a little bit for somebody else. Um, they'll try using their natural herbs. They, they do their cer own ceremonies. They, uh, <clears throat> they live very humbly. Uh, they, you know, they build their own houses and you know, they use their own local materials. They learn how to cut their own wood, whatever. It's a very beautiful culture. Yeah. If I could ask, um, more uh, the sense of how these communities were probably a lot more self-sustaining before um, globalization kinds of proce processes. I've heard more about like NAFTA in, in Mexico, but wondering, <coughs> I was just wondering how you, <coughs> I, know, I know you come in with your, your sense of um, how to build these relations internationally, but they must also be looking to, to relocalize Um, the advantage of Guatemala is that these people grow their own food. They grow, they grow not like in the Philippines. They grow their own corn. They live on their diet is basically corn, and then they'll grow little beans and they'll grow grow a little chili and they'll grow apazote or, or some other green. That's their diet. They don't buy food in the store. There aren't any stores. They there's a few stores in the villages, but. Um, they may buy some vegetables in the in the town in the market, but um, if I could clarify that, just the the so in Mexico, it's the sharp difference of NAFTA that produces this, right? Ninety three NAFTA comes in, it destroys the Aikido, and so in the Mayan speaking communities on one side of the border, they go from having land to not having land. On the Guatemalan side of the border, that event takes place. 40 years earlier. So it's when the Americans depose Jacobo Arbenz as uh, president of Guatemala that they then see that they then seize the Mayan peasants land. It's my understanding, Ira, that a lot of the land was seized during the war uh, when he when there was a coup d'etat that was 1954. Yeah. Um, the people began organizing. Um, <clears throat> what happened was uh, the, the first major uh, promoter of, that, of the movement was the earthquake. I'm trying to remember the year of that. Um, there was a 74. Was it 74? I believe so. That was the big Mexican earthquake? That was the American No, I'm thinking oh. one further south. I thought that was when it no, hit it was, Nicaragua uh, and Guatemala. No, it was, it was quite a bit before that. 
But okay. uh, I know I know the uh, the militias began organizing in the late fifties, and they established themselves in the early sixties, and then. When the war the the war came in I think you might be right seventy four the war came in seventy nine eighty and that's when um, the the peasants the people on the land were rounded up and put in concentration camps um, their land taken away from them um, turned over to a lot of these Finca owners uh, Euro some Europeans some nationals so that. So in that process, they, <clears throat> of course, the government worked closely with these corporate entities and their agriculture ministries worked with them and, you know, developed their cropping systems and sugar, uh, African palm oil, cattle, um, rice. The rice is more of a food crop, but the others were export crops. And a lot of land was taken from the people. Like in the case of these communities I'm working in that are growing in Sulina, what you have there are chicken, chicken factories. So you'll have a chicken barn and then you'll have a huge forest all around it of some kind of cypress tree which will sterilize the air to prevent disease getting into the chickens because they're living in such unhealthy conditions, right? And they and those chickens will feed the cities, right? So because Chimaltenango is near the city, it makes sense to grow chickens to meet the needs of the people in the city. And so it caused the price of land in that entire area to go up. Uh, and the need for that land to grow these forests and to build these chicken barns uh, allowed these wealthy people to, to seize the land and the land prices got higher and higher so people couldn't afford to buy. So basically the people in these highland areas near the city, near this town, the city of Chimaltenango, near the city of Guatemala City, they're landless peasants. Whereas the people I work with in the cacao growing areas, um, they, they have land, they're, they're so, they're different, you know, it's like studying the Chinese Revolution and there's the middle peasants and the upper middle peasants and the lower middle peasants, well, yeah. it's the same here, you, you've got different peasant classes, um, and when you, when I say peasant, it doesn't, don't mean just that they're on the land, they're also working, maybe working in factory, or their son's working in a factory in the city, or going to the city to work, um, whereas, so the family, the women will be more involved with their women's communities and, you know, raising chickens or pigs or whatever they can, and, and now growing a few herbs for me and maybe doing some experiments like growing a few vegetables but on rented land. The men would be out in the fields working for, the, for other people to get a day wage. And the son or the daughter would be working in the town in retail or the son would be off working in the factory. Right? So it's a, it's a mixed economy, but it's really tied to their home, which is in a rural village, which is where people are growing their corn. So uh, it's, 
it's a very humble lifestyle, very low consumption, and um, the idea is to build a relation between these classes of people with people who, uh, who you know, have more consciousness, political consciousness, and and want to dedicate their lives if they're in the cities in North America or wherever or Europe to uh, supporting uh, a way of life that they respect and so and building a, a real relationship between between them and um, so one question I've always wanted to ask Ira is um, Right, you were doing this kind of work uh, in 1988 when I met you. You'd been doing it for a few years then. In the 40 years that you have been going to um, Mayan territory, to Los Altos, this region of Guatemala, what have been the changes that you've witnessed in the economy, the politics, the environment? Um, <clears throat> I wish I could say it was positive, but... There's some serious problems, right? Uh, the biggest one, of course, is the United States government opening their borders, trying to get immigrants to come into the United States. Uh, for example, Guatemalans. If, uh, <clears throat> if you've got a factory somewhere in, in the States and five, pe five people apply and one of them is Guatemalan, they'll hire a Guatemalan in the way. Because the Guatemalan people know how to work. Um, they're really hard workers. And of course, they don't have any benefits. So their wages are lower. They don't have any social services and payments to make. And um, they work twice as hard. So um, the United States economy wants to immigrants, especially hard-working, cheap labor, to come into their country. And... Of course, people who will vote for the Democratic Party, right? That's what they want. And so it's created a flood of immigrants from all over the country. And as the global economy has gotten worse because inflation has gone up, and of course the price of land is skyrocketing, so um, the pressures are on these people just as much. If they had their own land, like for example, the people, the, the people, the peasant classes that have land, they're laughing. They, they, they at least they grow their own food. <coughs> so they don't, they don't have any mortgage to pay or any of that. So they're, they'll be fine, right? It's the people who, <coughs> who are in the cities, the people who, uh, who don't have land, they're the ones that are under stress. And, and when the opportunity comes, well, go to the states. Well, what's happening is that the people will sell their property if they have it or sell their house or whatever they have to do to pay a coyote to guide them up to the United States. So it's impoverishing the land. The people who do have land are losing it. Like I, I was just in prison in Cancun a year ago. <clears throat> and I, you know, I, in my jail was this Honduran guy. The guy had like a hundred hectares of land, right? He grew all these amazing crops and what are you doing here? Oh, I wanted to go see what's like working in the United States, make some cash. He left it all behind. It's just that it, it, there's just this amazing...
propaganda that come to the United States, the land of milk and honey. And so that, that's had a, a pretty serious negative effect on people. It's, it's taken the pressure off the government, off the government to, uh, that these people are organizing and they want a better system of government. And they don't care about their own local governments because, uh, I mean, they care about their local government, but they don't care about um, the national government because uh, they know it's corrupt and they and uh, their out is to go out, get out, go go out to work in the state, in Mexico or in the states. So that's what's been happening. So the the powerful political movements that were going on in Guatemala just a few years ago have all quieted down. I mean, they they tried. There was amazing. Like I was part of it. You know, I was in. We were involved in all these different organizations and each organization would have representatives from different communities so it was like a network of communities in each area and they were all organized politically they were having political education and when the time came they would shut down the government over their demands and like guatemala was going through one civil paralysis after another the government was up against the wall i mean there were protests of hundreds of thousands of people in the city the strip the, the highways were all shut down this was going on for two or three years it's just a few years ago but um, now with this immigration thing it's kind of partly that's caused it to dissolve and partly they didn't succeed you know they they built up this movement just over the last few years and you know over my 40 years there's been all these different movements of course you know and 88, um, I was working in the East Shield Triangle, and the Civil War was still going on there. And so, <clears throat> Where's the East Shield Triangle? East Shield Triangle, okay, that's in the Highlands. That's further west. So, like, Guatemala consists of, like, the north and the northeast. Uh, it's all the rainforest. And then you go further south, and you go into the deserts, and then you go further south... And you're you're into Guatemala City, and then to the west, the further west you go, the higher the mountains go. So Chimaltenango is about sixty five hundred feet, Quiche is about eight hundred eight thousand feet, Totonicapan maybe eight eighty five hundred feet. Right. So each of these areas had these organizations, and I was involved with them. Like in what year was it? <coughs> can't remember which year it was, but I helped finance the first national campesino organization that was legalized so that they would be able to get some funding, right? Up till then, you get a rich family that would set up an NGO and start promoting the poverty of the people to international investors and contributors, and all the money would pour into Guatemala and it would go to them. And then these people I knew were working for these rich people. And then they said to me, hey, we want to set up our own organization, but we need money. We can't do it unless it's illegal. Because if you do something that's illegal, then you're considered a terrorist, or in those days, a rebel. And you'd be considered a, like, it's like the New People's Army of the Philippines. You were considered a rebel. So they wanted to get legalized in order to carry on their work legitimately 
So I gave him money to, and you know, you have to give it all to these lawyers who do all, you know, paperwork like that, register, pay off the right people, and then they become a legal entity. So what that was, was we, we had all these different regions that were organized. So there'd be one or two main leaders, and they had all these communities in their own region. And uh, these are leaders who often, of, often they were trained. Like what happened, just to give you an example, is after the earthquake of 74, all this money came into Guatemala to help the people. And they realized that, you know, they were going to have to help them organize. So all this money and all these trainers came into Guatemala to, to teach people how to be good leaders, how to dedicate themselves to the people. And they went through this elaborate training process. Where did and the leaders come from? Where did this training um, come from? There were some people from Antigonish in Nova Scotia. There was people from Switzerland, all over, you know, who are university trained social activist type people. They came to Guatemala and they introduced these ideas. Basically, they were trying to uh, condition these people these community leaders into totally dedicating themselves to the people, learning how to totally eliminate any sense of self-importance, self-interest, just to, you know, like the ego is a big, big thing. They were trying to dissolve that and just put your, you know, look out for the people, just sacrifice yourself to the people. That was, that's what this training was all about. And a lot of the people I were working with in those days, had come uh, through all that process. And what happened was during the Civil War, the early 80s, till about 82, 83, the government, the military killed 13,000 of these activists who had been trained. All these people had been trained, were registered with the government, and they went out, they targeted them, they killed 13,000 of them. And this is part of the deathless process? Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know much about that. But that's what they. That's one of the key things because if they could break the spirit of these organizations and these leaders, then uh, they would d destroy the the momentum of these movements. And you know, the Civil War. I mean, uh, hundreds of thousands of people were slaughtered, and four millions of people fled their homes. Right, and it all came out through the process of these people being trained, setting up organizations. And then when I came along, this is about 88, 89, these people said, well, we can't do that because then we'll be killed. But if we can get ourselves legitimated, legalized, and so, all right, you give me, tell me how much it is, you know, we'll go look for the lawyers and do all the paperwork, get it all registered, pay off the registrars, whoever, and get yourself legitimate. So we did that. So we set up the first peasant network NGO in Guatemala and that's the way it was organized. You had a, a community of leaders who represented Western Highlands, Totonicapan, people in Quiche, people in Weiwei. And uh, Liv, I think, was asking how those people are selected. international training is I didn't really understand how that could be effective 
I'm surprised that it was effective. I thought the, those yeah. kinds would be. It was effective. Great. <laughs> yeah, it was effective. <coughs> so oh. much that they killed them. They killed all the people who were trained. They killed them as mo most of them. And and um, you know this was at the height of the war, you know 1981-82. But yeah, they killed 13,000 of them. You know, the people that I met were the people who had survived, right? Or their sons or daughters or wherever. And and um, and they wanted to be legitimate, so I helped them finance it. And and they they were just natural leaders in their communities, right? They were people that had a dedication to their people and wanted to and were smarter and <coughs> more intuitive and um was enough to protect them against these same killings. Yeah, none of them were killed. They were all fine. And uh, what happened is they eventually got into conflict amongst themselves and then they became, became autonomous, so they set up their own organizations in their own territories. It was a long process from the beginning when there was a national organization. And, you know, they, these people are not, you know, the idea of the training is to destroy that sense of corruption in you where you're willing to be paid out for recognition or a little bit of money or something. But it, you know, how effective it is in the end, who knows. But, you know, there was corruption in the organizations and <coughs> some of the leaders were living pretty good and off the money they were making from the international community. And so there were conflicts. No, 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 that guy's corrupt. You got to set up... You got to help us set up our own. So, so, and these were people that had connections in their communities, and uh, they were skilled people. You know, they knew how to do a lot of these crafts, and they all supported the ideas of eco development. They all supported the ideas of natural agriculture. Like that was a, that was a really important one. We were, you know, doing lots and lots of workshops around natural agriculture, and of course now, uh, with uh, that the disappearance of uh, nitrogen fertilizer, um, the high cost of nitrogen fertilizer, if people don't know how to grow naturally, then they're, uh, they're not going to get their crops. Is that because of current sanctions? For the, it's from Ukraine or Russia? <coughs> well, natural fertilizer, uh, nitrogen fertilizer is basically oil. It's a, it's a process the Germans developed a process. Lear Keith was telling me that um, uh, because we've become so dependent on this fertilizer that for the average North American over 50% of the nitrogen stored in our body is from petroleum. Yeah, it's a process of turning natural gas into fertilizer. I don't know how it works, but it, it was a German that invented it in the 1930s or something. And uh, one of the big technologies we promote is and one of the crops that we process and, and distribute is the macuna bean. I don't know if you've heard of macuna, but it's um, like I, I sell it as a type of coffee, like a ground coffee. You drink it and it it's like your, your mind is awake. It's refreshed. It's got energy and you feel you can think clearer and the macuna bean 
is the most powerful natural fertilizer there is that I know of. It, you plant macuna bean amongst your corn in one year and you get three years of fertilized corn. And corn is a major uh, consumption of nitrogen. So I was going to say, this might be a good point. When, so when we were first organizing together, you provided this facility for us to hold the first annual meeting of the Young Greens. We came together outside of, you know, Sorrento and uh, the Shushwap. And uh, at that time, you were running a permacultural operation. And um, is um, and so when you talked about the intercropping of corn and macuna, is this is this sort of continuous with that permacultural uh, idea of how to grow? Well, permaculture is a little different. It's a, it's it's basically what the Guatemalans do. It's basically creating a forest of different. Just to give you an example <clears throat> of how ancient and how effective this is, I. When I was working with Kaisahan in the Philippines, uh, there were some activists from this island that wanted us to visit them. <clears throat> it was a little island uh, uh, just off of Batangas, part of the state of Batangas. And um, there were three little fishing villages on the island, and then there was <coughs> major hillside. And that hillside was all planted. It looked like a natural forest, but it was all planted. And the, and the people in the villages, they would go up in the hillside, and they collect their bananas, their nuts, their, they range their animals up there for all the great feed their animals had. It was a planned permacultural site that was done who knows how many hundreds of years ago. And right, and this is the opposite of crop rotation, right? Where you place crops near each other. Sure. Yeah, crop rotation is just uh, putting one crop that doesn't need much nitrogen into one spot and then rotating it with something that does need a lot of nitrogen and just mixing your crop so that each crop needs a different type of mix of fertilizer, phosphor, whatever, uh, mineral mineral salts in the, in the earth, whatever. But this is creating a permanent system. And then maybe that's what I do in Clinton where I live. Um, you so they had this forest and where there's a bit of a clearing they might plant a few annual crops like some corn or something but mostly it was just a forest and, and people would just go up and range their animals pick their fruits you know all kind dozens and dozens of varieties of fruits and different kinds of nuts and and seeds and roots all kinds of roots it was all planted. It looked just natural, totally natural, right? Just like any forest in, in Vancouver, but it, like um, what's the name of the forest? Anyway, it all just looked natural, but it was all planted. That was, and this is, goes back hundreds of years. And then, you know, I've been reading a bit about the Amazon. That was all planted, like thousands and thousands of years. It was all planted. It was all food crops and whatever. Yep. That's permaculture. That's... Yeah, it's a little different than growing field crops. Like when you plant macuna, you're enriching the soil and you're growing a field crop. It's a little different. Permaculture is where you're planting a permanent structure of different types of trees. Some are shading, more shady areas. Some are less shady areas. So 
when they're in more shady areas, you can only, you have certain undergrowth crops. When it's less shady, more sun, there's other crops growing in. That's what a, and then, you know, you intervene and, you know, you might plant a few seeds here and there, but that was just a, a planted forest and people lived off it. Mm-hmm. They just ate their fish from the sea and they would go up and collect stuff in the island and that was their life. I mean, no stress, just beautiful life. <laughs> yeah, we did uh, one of our uh, summer institutes at uh, Linnea Farm where they teach permaculture oh, yeah. on Cortez. So uh, I know you had a reed island plan, but uh, yeah, that was many care. years yeah, ago. Yeah, I was, I was involved in Linnea and we, uh, we set up a land stewardship society in BC in oof, about 1970-something. And one of the uh, a guy who set up his farming in, what's it, in Galliano Island, he was part of it, and Tyson Bannigan was involved, and he was the one that got all this money to buy Linnea Farm. He got it from some rich corporate entity in the United States, but yeah, so I was indirectly involved in that. Trevor, Michael, any questions? Liv, another question? I'd be interested if you've, if you've had um, dealings with kind of seed sovereignty Monsanto types that they're direct uh, <coughs> kind of working on trying to take claim of land people you know have been working. Um, that's always been a big issue in Guatemala. I mean, people practically shut down the government, brought down the government in Guatemala when we tried to allow GMO Monsanto people into Guatemala. They almost forced the government to collapse. Pretty close. They won. They, you know, they were going to introduce legislation in the Congress to uh, to allow this type of seed into the country, but uh, the, the legislation was stopped. The people, that was one of the many, many issues for which the people shut down the country. And, you know, I, all these activists that I worked with and all these organizations, they were, I mean, they were continually fomenting this way. They were the, the heart of, of these movements. You know, they were teaching their people what these seeds were all about or whatever, or these chemicals and, or uh, whatever the political issue was. I mean, that, that was the backbone of their political movements that up till just a few years ago was shutting down the government on a regular basis. So and then, yeah. sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I, I'm just wondering if people like even as young as me or younger are, are still taking, are still learning about crops, are they not trying to leave to America or something? In Cuba that was the case. <coughs> Uh, I mean, I, you know, I worked, these organizations, they were all young people. I mean, they weren't old people. They were, you know, their 20s and 30s. I mean, um, age is not, um, there's no culture of one age versus a culture of another age there. I mean, the young people, and I mean, I'm talking about the the rural culture. The young people grow up in their families, they learn to work, do the work of their families, and it's all one culture, you know, they, there's no youth culture there, it's, uh, 
I mean, the cities are different, but uh, I mean, I only work with people who are connected with the land in some form or another. And um, the, the young learn uh, the skills of their parents, and they, you know, it's very difficult for them to leave their communities. And, you know, they're, we're going to, unless they want to go to the city and work in the cities, and sometimes, you know, they, so they'll go to the city and get a job, and they're gradually being alienated from their culture. But, now with the city is no longer producing sustenance for so many people they're having to go back to their community so yeah so uh, yeah there's not age isn't really a, a factor that much so in, the, in a rural community that's a pretty useful intervention let me just check the time here okay we've um We've been going for uh, a little over an hour. I wanted to test people's temperature. Do you want to... Uh, are there other questions for Ira? Do you want to devolve into a conversation? What are what, what do people feel like? Well, how how are you feeling? Do you want to take a break? Uh, you've been talking no, on I'm camera. Quite, you're doing I'm all right? Fine. You, you mean, want I something more to drink? Yeah. Need some more tea or water or wine? Would you I said wine would be great, yeah. Would you prefer red or white? Red would be nice. Yeah, I just harvested my grapes. It made a really delicious red wine. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, um, you've ended up in Clinton. Uh, for years, right, you. your organization was SAPEDS, Shushwap Association for the Promotion of Eco Desarrollo. Um, why the shift from the Shushwap to the Caribou? Well, um, Clinton is still considered part of Shushwap. Oh, yeah, Shushwap, the nation. Yeah, there's um, there's four Shushwap bands that claim Clinton. There's a Bonaparte right. around where High Creek is. All that High Creek area is Shushwap. So that's Bonaparte, and they're claiming Clinton. And then Canoe Creek, which is just to the north, and there's a fascinating elder and sovereignist that has a school, a sovereignty school in Canoe Creek. Oh wow! They they're claiming Clinton is theirs, and then <clears throat> then of course there's the the Clinton band, which uh, was bought out. They sold their property to BC Hydro, and they built all the power that comes to Vancouver comes through Clinton, right? So if we decide to shut down the power plant in Clinton, then Vancouver would be blocked out. So they sold all their property in Clinton, and they were given a trade for some good, rich land in Kamloops. And that their territory in Clinton was, was taken over by BC Hydro. And all the power from all the north of BC, all those big dams, all goes through Clinton. And what's the fourth one? Still, there was the shift. You were in Sorrento for a long time. Well, I, we were in a big fight. Um, and that was at the height of the bi-regional movement. And um, we had a very successful community, there were 11 of us, and we formed a bi-regional association to protect the lands all around that whole area. And we fought 
developers. Very intense. Lots of violence. Lots of court stuff. And uh, we held them off for three years, but there was so much money involved. That, and, you know, our, one of our most important actions was the one that, you know, Sonny was involved with where when we held the owner of this corp development corporation hostage in his office in his golf course with all it, you know, dozens and dozens of RCMP around and this poor guy paralyzed to his chair in his office and me giving him shit for hours and hours. <laughs> Everybody chained to the radiators and furniture with, you know, all this stuff. And I could have been in jail for life over that. <laughs> yeah, you no do. I mean, you go to jail a fair bit, but you get out pretty frequently. Well, the the, uh, the Tourist Association of BC freaked out about it. They didn't want the publicity, so we all, there were seven of us that were arrested, you know, kidnapping. <laughs> and, <laughs> you were arrested for kidnapping? Yeah, they kidnapped me. <laughs> you know, you, when you're desperate, you had the support of a lot of people, and so uh, we went for it. <laughs> so I, you know, we lost. Eventually we lost. And we lost. The only reason we lost is because I put my trust in a bunch of environmental lawyers to do it for me, and they totally fucked it up, and so we lost it. And I just didn't have the heart to go back. I see. And the community, the community totally got s stressed out by the whole thing. I mean, it was incredibly stressing and stressful, and people, it started splitting up, and people wanted to leave, and it was intense. I mean, people in our culture are not really built to train to withhold stress. <laughs> I was going to say, I've been waiting, You've. I think there's been a lot of forbearance in your characterization of Canadians. Um, you know, you, you are a Canadian, you have tried to use this country as your base, and yeah, a little more about, like, why it is the Canadians seem especially ill-suited to the kind of political um, relationships and confrontations you <clears throat> specialize in? Um, well, you, you don't, I mean, I, I'm a good person to answer that because I live in very different cultures. Right. Guatemalan culture, rural culture, um, people have a strong sense of community, a sense of uh, dedication to everybody in their community. Um, they're continually organizing as groups and doing things together as groups. And there's not that sense of personal identity and personal ambition that we have in, in more collectivized, more traditional type of uh, cultures. That's part of it. And then, the, of course, the other part is that the people of Guatemala have suffered a lot, right? Whereas we've had it pretty good up till now. I mean, now things are changing, but, you know, they've been through war, earthquakes, wars, um, you know, land seizures. Uh, I mean, in Guatemala... 
this, the, that's another one of the big issues of the land, right? So there, and the people I work with, you know, in these organizations that are promoting organic natural agriculture and permaculture, they're constantly organizing seizures of land to try to regain the land that they've lost from the rich. So there, there is constant battles going on. I mean, I, I, I'll go where I go to any community along the way to the community I'm working in. I'll see a new community sprouting here, a new community sprouting here. They seized the land. They held on to it. The military came in to try to kick them out. Uh, they managed to hold on to it. Not always. Sometimes they lose. And, but it's uh, land seizures and land community, new land community. That's going on continuously. And it's because they have these activists who are dedicated to their people and recognize you know, they got out of the land base. You know, I, all I, what I'm trying to do is, like with all these communities of landless peasants, I'm just trying to figure out how I can buy them land so, you know, they don't have to go through that. And, they, and they're in too uh, urbanized a, an area, you know, the government would never, the police, the military is right there. They, they don't have a chance if they tried to seize the, one of these livestock farms. They, you know, they would be eliminated. So uh, the only strategy I have is to buy land, but and that's what I'm trying to, I'm, you know, I do this market and make a bit of money, and then maybe I'll be able to buy a piece of land in one community every year kind of thing. But um, the people that are out of the city areas, they're, they're, they're seizing land all the time. There's new communities being born all the time, going all, and they're building their shacks out of plastic or gradually is turned into wood and wood is turned into adobe or concrete and they're gradually building up their communities and this is just two or three years. And if I could ask just how are these commu communities that are determined, like how they do keep the military from reseizing the land, it sounds like you could probably, um, <coughs> uh, well the sense of the environmental movement here and I think through the, throughout the west, uh, like into Europe as well, is just this um, really paralyzed or super toned down idea of what nonviolent resistance is where you can't even you can't even do anything like property damage or against the law or uh, respect uh, the boundaries of construction <coughs> and everything the people of Guatemala have a great advantage um, they're recognized internationally as a people who has suffered serious injustice like the native people here and you look at the native people they're in a little more privileged position and and um you know people actually have some respect for human rights in guatemala whereas here i mean look at me <laughs> they made it legal that i can't go into a court of law <laughs> i could go on and on about all the court cases i've, I've done but they have it right in the in the federal rules they could avoid going through due process. Very simple. You know, they just make up some story and no due process for you. Whereas in Guatemala, it isn't like that. There, there's, there's, you know, every country in the world's got an embassy there. They all, every embassy has human rights lawyers there. And you can go to any of these embassies and, and, and plead for help and, and complain about the military and, you know, sometimes the military are vicious and they, they just wipe you out or, you know, the community is forced off. But 
um, you know, these communities that lose to the military, they just take up their sheets of plastic and their seed corn and whatever, and they just move, you know, a half a kilometer down the road and they'll seize another piece, right? It's like, and, and these, you know, it, it's very expensive for the government to try to get into these remote, remote areas and with us bringing all these soldiers in and and the soldiers are peasants themselves. They don't. They don't want to be kick, part of kicking peasants of trying to survive. You know, feed them their families. They don't want to kick them off. So, so there's it's, a lot it's of part uh, of the <clears throat> this part of the success of some of those communities. They're remote enough that they never get into a conflict with the military in the first place. <clears throat> That's right. <clears throat> Well, you know, like I want to, <laughs> I work in a community, uh, they're doing cacao and um, <clears throat> some of them were growing marijuana and uh, the military invaded. Um, <clears throat> the community had a meeting, it was one of these Sunday meetings, what are we going to do, the, the, the military are up there. They ordered. They decided to kill them. <laughs> they actually killed four soldiers. They went up there and they they killed them. You know that was a community decision. They made. They had a meeting. All these my friends. They were part of the look. You know they they don't have a right to come in. They don't have a right to come into our territory without our permission. They violated our rights. We have a right to go up there and defend ourselves. And they had. Battle pitch battles with these soldiers, and they kill four of them. You know, they, people. The thing about Guatemala is, it is, it is a. <clears throat> it's really based on the principles of bioregional autonomy. Uh, Guatemala consists of three hundred and ten bioregions or regions of the country. Each region has their own government, and. Every government is guaranteed by the Constitution a certain amount of funds to develop their own economy. It's really uh, uh, the, the basis of a bioregion. It's kind of like the Federation of Regions in the Ukraine. You know, they were, each of these peoples were recognized by the Constitution and by their government. So there's something to work with, whereas here, you know. The so a parallel, though, because, of course, we're seeing it framed in opposite terms. But one of the things that's been coming out of the Canadian Emergencies Act inquiry is the fact that the, the police officers were highly class-adjacent to the truckers, right? They're basically from the same region of the country, from the same class, and both groups do what we might call unclean work in the minds of urbanites and the government became increasingly upset that they would order these different law enforcement agencies to have this confrontation with people they saw as essentially from the same place as themselves and so these confrontations wouldn't happen or information would be leaked from whatever law enforcement agency whether it was CSIS, the RCMP, the Ottawa cops or the Ontario Provincial Police, it would get leaked to the people doing the occupation of Ottawa. And one of the things I find really striking is that 
in our story, these are the opposite sides. No, 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 these truckers and these cops, they're part of the extreme right, and, and they're our enemies. But we hear a story about the peasants in the Guatemalan army and the peasants who've occupied the plantation owner's land and have got a bunch of, like, fires and shitty plastic structures going, and progressive Canadians sympathize when this happens in Guatemala. We find it funny and cool and ironic that the army won't kill the people who are class-adjacent to them. But when we deal with this in Canada, we're profoundly scandalized that the cops didn't obey us and they sided with the protesters and that's why we had to send in the army and why sending in the army was very it was a very good and important thing to do to preserve democracy and i find this kind of double consciousness really interesting that um that we process events in anglo-america one way but when those events get far enough away, we process them the opposite way, that we sympathize with the rural proletariat and the peasants in the army in one setting, but in our, our own setting, we don't. And I, I mean, obviously, in both cases, right? Not everybody who's, like, living in a plastic hut, uh, you know, with a fire occupying the landlord's land, like, that that person might not be, like, the most together person. They might not be entirely, like, ideologically congruent with us, even. They might even have, like, behaved badly um, and decorously. But I'm, I'm interested in your take on, like, how, uh, uh, how that shakes down, how our sympathies work. Well, yeah, you have to you have to really wonder about the analysis of our intellectual classes, you know, in terms of. You know, I I you know I don't really have a left or socialist perspective. I I do in the sense that I think every local region, like in Guatemala, the region or the municipio, they have control. Those people, when the military came in without their permission. They said, no way, you don't do that. I mean, they, we have autonomy. This is our community, this is our land. You can't come in. Whereas here, you know, uh, here the, our central governments are, you know, continually seizing more and more power and <clears throat> nobody has a sense of regional autonomy. It doesn't exist here. So... Uh, or like nations that do, like indigenous nations, they don't... I, I mean... I don't know to what extent they have been successful against Canada, Canadian kind of um, <clears throat> complacency. I think it's pretty amazing that so many people uh, blocked trains like they did. In the Idle No More yeah. uh, wave a couple years ago. I was ago. shut down in Canada. It was the train blocking. Oh. It was the, the gust of uh, the uh, Wet'suwet'en Solidarity Movement, right? I think so. Yeah. Uh, Idle no, no More was seven years before that. They didn't block train lines, I don't think. But it is the more recent one that I mean. And uh, yeah, the, that's what so with him, Solidarity shut down Canada. And so there are um, 
are people in Canada, it seems, who are not so, um, you know, who have understanding of communities enough to protect it or to protect land. But I, I think there is, like you, like we've been saying before, this um, a propaganda machine basically against it that is um, very divisive, very much um, crippling individual mentality. That's a key. Um, the, uh, there is no propaganda machine in Guatemala. Uh, <clears throat> I worked in Cabon for a while uh, with uh, cacao growers and they grew vanilla. They grew a few of the crops I was buying. And I was trying to do some projects with them. They had some good activists. <clears throat> they had their own radio station. They could, they broadcast all through the mountains huge huge territory they had a transmitter that could everybody everybody in these maybe two or three hundred communities and the main town they only listened to their radio station broadcast in their own language that's the only media that's why um and they and the, these guys would be pumping out their ideas all the time, you know. Uh, and and when when they w had to do blockades, you know, hundreds of them would come down from the mountains in the villages and come and take over the, the highways and shut down shut down the economy. Because here we have the CBC, you know, whatever other media there is, you know, they're just continually pushing all this complete bullshit on people and. Everybody's, you know, instead of seeing what's in front of their eyes, they're just listening to the media, whatever kind of media they're using here. Whereas in Guatemala, I mean, Guatemala has one of these right-wing newspapers, you know, which throw toes the party line all the time, but nobody reads it. <laughs> you know, I, and, I, you know, I in my town, you know, I, you know, my friends are the ones that sell this stuff because they make a few pennies a day from selling it. And I'm just saying, poor mentira, it's just all lies. It's all lies. I'd say, take their copy and, and, and I'd show, look at that. That's all bullshit. And that's all bullshit. That's all bullshit. And then they'd be passing that information that I, because I have credibility because I'm a foreigner, right? I could might as well be an alien or some god from another planet or something. And I'm just saying, this is all total bullshit. And so they're telling all the friends, this is all bullshit, all bullshit, and pretty soon they're not selling it anymore. <laughs> and that's it. That's, there's a, you know, the radio, I mean, the radio does a bit of propaganda, you know, the commercial radio, but they have their own radio stations, and they're pumping out their own ideas, and that's, they have their own media. You know, I mean, I'd like to get a radio station in Clinton and start broadcasting real information, but... Um, you know the all you need is a little bit of money to buy a transmitter and you're off broadcasting there's no federal legislation and going through uh, all these regulatory bodies and you know getting permission to have an airwave all that none of that exists they just they find a frequency they buy a transmitter and there's you know couple of people running the radio station and you know nobody's getting paid of course that's another thing people don't need money that much money there they 
you know, they, they live off their crops, they live really simply, you know, they, they have their animals, if they need meat, they're going to butcher an animal, they, they grow their corn, or, you know, the corn is, if they buy it, it's like 20 cents a pound kind of thing, it's fairly cheap, but, you know, they, people survive, and um, they don't need piles and piles of money in order to survive, so they're not hooked into the system like we are here, it's another major this is one of the best observations from the folks at Deep Green Resistance, which was, it's like, no, it, capitalists don't need a reason to pollute a river. It is in the vested interests of capitalism that you can't catch a fish in this river. Because right. if you can't feed yourself from the world, it gives them power over you. That's right. And, yeah, that ability to control, have secure housing in your own food supply... This was Thomas Jefferson's argument against universal suffrage, was he argued that only people who could control their own food supply with their own land could make altruistic political decisions. Um, He later recanted that belief and came out in favor of universal suffrage, but I don't know, I finally sort of got that asshole's point uh, hearing uh, your stories and uh, Lear Keith's. So um, I'm thinking that uh, people's knees are a little tired. Are there any sort of last remarks or last questions before we go to something more informal? Um, Sorry. Go ahead. I'm talking about um, buying the land back. What's the land cost in that area? It's expensive. So what I have to... Basically, what I'm trying to do, and one of the reasons I bought land in Clinton, is find pieces of land that are a little bit outside the system. You know, so the prices are down enough that I can afford. I mean, they're going to have to walk. If I wanted to buy a piece of land right, right within their community, I couldn't do it. But if I, you know, if I can go a little bit up the hill, they might have to walk for an hour to get to it. I could, I could probably buy a piece of land. And the, and le- the legal fees, all of that process you're talking about, is this thousands of dollars, Canadian dollars? or? Yes, thousands of Canadian dollars. Yeah, when I built that uh, sugarcane machine, state-of-the-art, the most advanced, efficient machine ever created. I mean, that cost me quite a few thousand dollars. And they just blew it up. <laughs> that really set back the movement. Big time. Well, that's the thing. You know you're on the right track because they spent so much money blowing your thing up. That's right. I, uh, it's like sometimes I think I've attained complete political irrelevance and then I'm hit with a sledgehammer and I think, oh shit, I must have been get, about to get something right. <clears throat> that's right. Well, yeah, this is... Same thing with me in the coffee trade in Guatemala. You know, they they tried to kill me because I was trying to run an autonomous coffee trade. So now I have to do everything illegally. Well, somehow that seems like a thing you're suited for. So let's uh, sign off the uh, Facebook Live broadcast. I'll shut down the uh, recording. I'm not used to talking like this so much. But... Ninety minutes. This is good. Good content. Great material. 
This has been another episode of Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker. If you're interested in following my other work, please check out my blog at stuartparker.ca or my institute, Los Altos, at losaltos.ca. Los Altos also maintains an audio archive of the courses we have taught here on Anchor. Finally, if you're interested in supporting the work that I'm doing here, consider visiting my page on Patreon and making a monthly contribution to support independent critical thought. 